Hello there, welcome to the episode 7 of the HSK Student Pod. This is Richard, your host from the HSK ATEC team. Thank you for joining us on episode 7 of the HSK Student Pod. It's a pleasure to have you as one of our listeners. As usual, I want to start off by thanking you all our listeners for the continuous positive feedback and the creative ideas you have been giving regarding the HSK Student Pod. At the time of recording this episode, we have had about 1,500 plays in total. Please, do not stop. We encourage you to keep sending in any ideas you've got and to share the podcast with your friends to help to continue building the HSK staff student community. I know we have been in a tough time of the academic year for both students and staff. Students have been very busy with exams and finishing off those assignments for this academic year, including attending placements. On the other end, staff have been very busy marking the students' assignments and exams under very, very tight deadlines. I'm just glad to say this pressure time of the academic year is coming to an end. Before I forget, I just need to let you know about something else that has been going on this month. We were given an opportunity to share the HSK Student Pod Project idea at this year's UH Annual Teaching and Learning Conference. The title for our video presentation was Podcasting an Innovative Student-Staff Partnership. We teamed up with our Associate Dean, uh, Dr. Julie Volo, our well-known and very helpful education technologist, Dr. Anthony Ablan, and myself to create the conference video presentation submission. I'm glad to say we got really very good response and feedback from the audience who attended the conference. As usual, I have special guests for you who are going to share wonderful messages with us, and I hope you enjoy this episode. First, we have a message from Julie Volo, our Associate Dean for Learning and Teaching and Student Experience. Julie is going to give us some general news and updates on what's going on in the school. I now hand you over to Julie. Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to the June podcast. I want to start this time by saying a big thank you to our outgoing school community organisers or SEOs. That's Tunde Elugbaju from Adult Nursing, Join Moyo from Learning Disability Nursing, Paul Wicklam from the Radiography and Imaging Programme and Kaylee Malone from Paramedic Science. The SEOs do all sorts of work behind the scenes and they've done a fantastic job this year. Probably much of it you won't even be aware of, but very grateful for the input they've put into the school community and really looking forward to working with our new SEOs next year, which we're just interviewing for uh, with the help of the Students' Union. So watch this space and we'll let you know who they're going to be uh, as soon as I know. In other news, um, we've had a survey go out to students who live on campus asking what it's like when you're doing a placement and you share with people in your flat who don't perhaps appreciate that you need to go to bed and get up at different times to them. Um, So we've had over 141 responses to this survey, so thank you very much all of those of you that have completed it. Uh, the Students' Union have conducted the survey for us and they're now doing the analysis. So I hope that we'll get a report soon and be able to share that on the school site. But the responses for that, um, I hope, will go towards improving the residential allocations for students who are on placement. Uh, and big thanks go to Kayleigh Malone in Paramedic Science for keeping this really important bit of work very high on our agenda. Um, so we'll wait and see what students are telling us. Uh, And then we're going to work with the students' um, residential allocations team to see whether there is a way to allocate um, for students on placement to residences that are perhaps more suitable for for people who need to be in and out at perhaps unsocial hours 
making sure that you as students get the, the rest and support that you need in order to, to do your placement successfully. Um, the other survey that we've had out uh, has been run by my colleague, Karen Atkinson from Physiotherapy. She's been conducting a survey, again with students, about personal tutoring. So she's looking at your views of personal tutoring uh, and what it is that makes personal tutoring successful for you. Uh, and that's had over 180 responses. So again, um, lots of students, I think, with something to say about personal tutoring and really hoping that the responses will help us to improve the way that we, we organise and run personal tutoring and doing it in a way that, that actually helps you uh, in your academic studies and also in terms of your health and general well-being. So we're just waiting again for the analysis for that and then we'll be able to share some of those headline findings back with you. On a personal note, I was very lucky in the last month to be invited to the Students' Union Teaching Awards event uh, where all the nominees have been voted in by students uh, and I saw our own Kate Morrow from Adult Nursing who was, um, who was the winner for HSK, so for Best Teacher in HSK, so well done to Kate. Uh, and the highly commended prize went to Teresa Groves from the Paramedic Science Programme uh, and again from students who nominated Teresa in that category. Also was extremely lucky to go to Westminster Abbey as part of the annual Florence Nightingale commemorations, uh, which this year included a service for Edith Cavell, who was the wartime nurse uh, in the First World War, that is, who was shot for helping hundreds of soldiers escape the fighting uh, and soldiers, in fact, from, from all sides, so not just from the British and Allied forces. Um, so that was a really special service to be part of. Um, absolute best part was watching our own students, University of Hertfordshire, uh, nurses and midwifery students in full uniform, uh, some even with the old traditional frilly caps on, uh, processed down the centre of the abbey to accompany the uh, lighted lamp or the lit lamp, uh, which was then passed over um, to demonstrate the passing of knowledge and experience from generation to generation in nursing and midwifery. So it was, it was a really lovely service and I have to say um, one that I'm going to remember for a long time yet. So that's enough for me. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast and don't forget to let us know if you've got something you'd like to share. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, whatever you're studying and whatever you're working in HSK. Thanks, Richard, and over to you. Thanks, Julie, for sharing with us the important news and keeping us up to date on what's going on in the school. We always appreciate these updates. Following up on Julie's message of appreciation to the outgoing school community organisers, Tunde, Paul, Kelly and Joy Moyo, your behind-scenes of community work has been appreciated. You've been fantastic HSK community organisers. Please many thanks to your input this academic year. Congratulations to our special lecturer Kate Morrow from the Adult Nursing Team, who was the winner for the Best Teacher in HSK for the Student Union's Teachers Awards. Well done, Kate. Definitely our students really appreciate your excellent teaching and the support you give them. Don't forget, Teresa Groves from the Paramedic Science Team who took the highly recommended prize for Best Teacher in HSK. Well done, Teresa. I know Teresa has recently got a new role in another university, but wherever you are, Teresa, HSK students did really appreciate your support you gave them. We shall miss you and we wish you good luck in your new job. Please, as Julie mentioned, if you have got something you want to share with the HSK student board listeners or you have an idea you want to share, do get in touch. You could be a student or you could be a staff member either way. 
We are always happy to have you as one of our guests. Please, if you want to get in touch, just send an email to Richard. And the email is r.matovo2 at hearts.sc.uk. So I'll repeat, just send an email to uh, Richard and the email is r.m for mother, a for apple, t for Thomas, o for office, v for victor, u for umbrella, then you put a number two at hearts.sc.uk. Alternatively, feel free to pop in room 2F. 267, that is room 2F267, which is located at the top floor of the right building. We are always happy to receive you. For this month's student success stories, we have our guest, Yasmin Carr, our first year midwifery student. Yasmin is going to share with us our first time experience of witnessing a childbirth as a midwifery student. I now hand you over to Judy, who had the opportunity of meeting and interviewing Yasmin. Thank you, Richard. And uh, we're now going to move on to talk to Yasmin. Yasmin is one of our first year midwifery students, and she's here with us today to talk about her experiences uh, of being out in the midwifery units and of her first experiences of witnessing childbirth. So Yasmin, thank you so much for coming to join us today. We're going to start, I'm going to ask you a little bit to start with about why you chose to become a midwife, why that's your career of choice. So at school, one of my friends, her mum was actually a midwife and I always knew I wanted to go into that kind of framework of work. Um, so I asked her if, I, if there's anything I could do to gain a little bit of experience um, in midwifery. So she did antenatal classes, postnatal classes and breastfeeding classes um, and said to me, no, you're more than welcome to come along and sort of listen in. Um, so I listened into all these classes and she also ran a tongue tie clinic. Okay. So I went along to... Do you want to just explain tongue what tongue tie is? So um, some babies are born with uh, the skin underneath their tongue. It is um, slightly longer to the end of their tongue, yeah. um, which means that they... Um, Sometimes, it, not necessarily all the time, something needs to be done about it, um, but babies that have problems with feeding and latching, sometimes that bit of skin underneath the tongue needs to be cut okay. so that they can um, latch properly okay. in feeding. Um, so she ran this clinic where babies would come along, and it sounds awful, but we would um, cut the skin underneath the tongue so okay. that they were able to latch properly and then have more successful feeding. Right. Okay, so you get lots of uh, preparation before deciding to actually apply. And your, 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 your friend's mum sounds fantastic. She gave you those opportunities. So doing these things help you decide that this, this is the career you wanted to come into. Yeah, so I liked um, reading around the subject as well. So okay. she gave me all these things to read and books that she had. And the more I read, the more I knew that's what I wanted to do. Lovely. Okay, so here you are now in your first year. Um, it must be, I can't imagine what it's like when you're thinking about the first birth that you are going to witness or to be part of. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, for other people listening as well, many people will never have seen a birth, will never through their entire life see a baby being born. So um, talk us through your experiences. And we're going to talk, we talked a little bit before we started recording about some are very positive experiences and some not so positive. Childbirth isn't always as straightforward as we hope it's going to be and the outcome isn't always as good as, you know, 
that, that we want it to be. And I know that's very difficult as a student because you don't know what's going to happen. You have no way of, of you have no crystal ball about that. So I'm going to ask you first of all to talk a bit about your first experience of being part of, of, the, of the team in a childbirth. And I know that's not such a, a positive experience, but I think you probably learned a huge amount from it. So talk us through that to start with. So as a first year at university, we're taught about the normalities mm-hmm. um, of childbirth. And I turned up to the maternity unit quite excited, all in my yeah. uniform, um, brand new shoes, went in and we had a lady who was having her second baby. Um, and things were all quite low risk. Everything was very calm. Um, and she got into the pool. It was a water bath. And my midwife shouted out, um, severe mech. Now, I understand that um, meconium is, um, it occurs when a baby is in distress. So automatically I thought, oh, that doesn't sound And this is the passage of meconium, again, because not everyone's going to know. So this is the passing of meconium from the baby. Yes, the baby um, will pass meconium when they are distressed. Um, It is not something that is normal. And um, if it happens and a baby inhales it, they can have all sorts of complications. So um, my midwife said, we're going to have to get this lady out of the pool straight away. And this baby was coming and there was no stopping this baby either. So we got the lady out of the pool. She um, laid onto the bed in a position which she felt was comfortable. We were sort of working around Mm. her. And um, a lot of meconium came out. And the baby, followed by the baby. Mm -hmm. um, And by this point, I'd had to call the um, red bell, which is our emergency bell. And I had no idea. This was my first ever day. I'd had no idea what was going to happen when I, once I pulled the so bell. So your, your midwife says, pull the bell. Yeah, she'd informed okay. me before when we did sort of like a little tour. If I ever say, I need you to pull the red yeah. bell, then you do it straight away. Okay. So I now pulled this bell and all these alarms went off. And I'm thinking, have I just pressed the fire alarm or yeah. <laughs> I have no idea yeah. what I've yeah. just pressed? Um, and the next thing, within seconds, about 20 people then come rushing into the room. I can almost, I feel, I'm listening to you and I can, I can almost feel, I can feel the adrenaline coming now yes. even listening to you. So you've gone from, here we are, normal birth, water birth, nice and peaceful. And suddenly you've got everyone there, the red button's been pulled, baby's in distress, your first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it must have, your heart must have been going like that. Yeah, it was rather scary. Um, so all these people came in um, already for this baby. Yeah. Um, the baby was not responding. Um, and it hadn't taken its first breath to yet, which is mm. a little bit worrying. Um, so I kind of felt really in the way of everybody. Mm. So I thought, I'd better get out of the way. So I went over to this woman, and um, I held her hand. She wanted, she grabbed for my hand mm-hmm. straight away. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll hold her hand. And um, she's asking me, you know, what's, what's going on? What's happening with my baby? And as a first year, I have no idea what was going on with this baby yeah. at, at all. And she said, is my baby going to be okay? And I can't turn around and say, Yes or no, because yeah. I don't know. Um, so I said to her, if I understand any of it of what's going on, I'll let you know. Um, so I just carried on holding her hand and sort of rubbing her arm slightly. And she was crying, her partner was crying, mm-hmm. and I had little tears coming out of my eyes of sort of panic and worry, mm-hmm. thinking I really hope everything's going to mm-hmm. be okay. This baby had to be resuscitated. Um, and as this was taking place... And this place, is all happening, sorry, sorry, I yeah. to, but it's all happening in the room, so the yeah, resuscitation yeah. is there in the room, everyone's yeah, around so the baby. Yeah, so we have a resuscitator in the yeah. room, ready, Yeah. Um, because as soon as we sort of 
my midwife stores the meconium, she told me to go and get the resuscitator. Mm-hmm. So I then brought that into the room, ready, because um, we can all do it in the birth rooms. Mm-hmm. So the baby went over to the resuscitator, was resuscitated and started to cry. Um, but during this time, it all happened incredibly mm-hmm. fast. Um, as I'm looking at the woman, we've got um, sort of very thin white cotton bedsheets. Mm-hmm. And these cotton bedsheets started to soak with blood. Now, a bit of blood yeah. is quite normal. Um, but this was almost like a puddle of blood. Mm-hmm. So I turned to her and I said, oh, you know, are you feeling okay? By this point, I'm looking over to my midwife, asking her, I need you to come and see this, mm-hmm. this woman as soon as possible. Um, she was right next to the woman anyway, but obviously with everything going on, it's almost like, where do you look? Yeah. What, what do you do kind of thing? Um, so she's, it turned out that this lady was having a um, massive obstetric hemorrhage um, and she lost a rather a lot of blood um, and ended up having a blood transfusion. Um, cut the long story short, mum was fine in the end and so it was baby. But I think as a first experience, you think, oh my goodness, yeah. I've been taught all of this normality, um, wrapped in a bit of cotton wool kind of thing. And it all seems this lovely like picture. But really, in the real world, my midwife can't hide me from what really takes place. And I think that was quite scary. <laughs> it, it sounds that even just listen to it. And yet, and yet I can hear the learning in it for you. And I think I said at the beginning, it was, I think I might have used the phrase, you know, more of a negative experience. But it kind of, it is and it isn't. I mean, it was a huge learning experience. But it sounds like everybody knew what they were doing. It sounds like the responses were really slick and fast. That everyone had a role to play. And the, the outcome, you said, that both baby and mum were okay in the end because everybody knew exactly what was required of them. But wow, how nerve-wracking to be involved in the first time. So it's <laughs> really nice also then to think that you have gone on and had other experiences a little bit more straightforward and you have a lovely story about another water birth, but one that went perhaps a little bit more smoothly. So talk yes. us through that. So um, the lady came into the maternity unit and my midwife said, you know, would you like to possibly take a bit more of a lead? Now, I'd seen my five witnesses um, and I'd already delivered two So babies. hang on now, five witnesses is, yes. explain that to us. So um, as a first year, before you can start being a little bit more hands-on mm-hmm. in a delivery, you have to have witnessed five deliveries. And okay. the reason behind that is you almost reflect on what you've seen and you talk with your mentor about what you've experienced, how you've felt, and sort of learning curves that you've mm-hmm. seen. And I think you, you can't just sort of jump in and, and deliver a baby. Um, you have to obviously observe a few okay. Okay. So to, done before you start okay. delivering. So okay. I'd done my five. Um, I'd had uh, two deliveries already, which were, they were okay. Mm-hmm. They were a little bit scary, um, but my third delivery was what stood out for me okay. the most, which is probably, oh, I can't even put to words how great it was. Um, but this lady had a water birth, so my midwife let me take a bit more of a lead, and she'd worked with me quite a lot, so she obviously knew my strengths um, and trusted that I could possibly take a bit more of a lead. She's got eyes in the back of her head. She <laughs> knows exactly what I'm doing, um, but she did let me take more of a lead. So I brought this lady in, took her into the room, and things were progressing quite quickly. So I ran the pool ready, got it to the correct temperatures, um, and got her straight into the pool. And you see, you notice in women a complete change in their tones when they are 
um, in labour, you kind of get the kind of ouch mm-hmm. sounds to a real grunt mm-hmm. when you think, is something kind of going on okay. a little bit more? So she told me she had pressure and felt that she wanted to push. So throughout this entire time, we were obviously checking in the pool and I'd made a really good sort of um, friendship with these with this lady and her partner um, and throughout her sort of early stages of the labour where she was able to talk to me a lot yeah. more um, she was asking me lots about sort of my life and I was asking her about it and it turned out we had quite a few things in common so I'm looking with we have mirrors um, which we use in pools just to make sure that we are always one step ahead of what is going on um, so I asked her for permission again when she said she had the urge to push and she had quite a lot of pressure um, so as I brought the mirror down into the water again, the head was there. Okay. <laughs> and so I looked over to the toilet and I said, oh, the head's there. I didn't quite want to be like, um, the head is I coming. Like, I like the way you're whispering it to me now as well. Oh, the head's there. I couldn't yes. have said it loud um, because the partner was a bit kind of worried about yes. what was going to happen. It's obviously okay. not the, so, well, for some, it's not the most pleasant thing to yeah. see. Um, and he was very, very worried. So I didn't want to sort of say anything quite quickly, like, oh, the head is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so my midwife said to me, you know, are you, are you sure? Because it happened so quickly. Yeah. Um, so she looked down and by then she looked at me and said, you're right. <laughs> um, and at university we're taught, you know, you have clean arms, you pop your gloves on. There was no time to pop any gloves on whatsoever. So I had gloves in my was, pocket. This baby was coming. <laughs> this baby was coming. <laughs> okay. So I had gloves in my pocket. Um, and I thought, I'm going to have to just catch this baby almost. Yeah. It's, it's coming and I'm going to have to support this baby. I haven't got time to put gloves on. And obviously this baby's priority, not my gloves. So I put my hands into the water and this baby came out. Um, and I'd obviously informed the woman before. I said, you know, when your baby's delivered, I'm going to pass baby through your legs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll help you bring baby to your chest for immediate skin yeah. to skin. Um, so as I brought the baby through the lady's legs, um, my midwife said, you know, look, look. And as we all looked down, the baby didn't realise it had been born. <laughs> so it's still sort of like kicking about in the water oh, and looking so really sort of calm yeah. um, and didn't realise it had been So this born. baby comes out into the warm pool of water from yeah. its own warm pool yes. of water, the amniotic sac, and it comes out. And so you're you're saying that momentarily the baby doesn't even realise that it's out in the world. No, it didn't realise it had been born just yet. Um, So for a few seconds we were kind of looking at this baby and you've obviously got tears running down your eyes that you've never seen anything like it. Um, And then I brought baby out of the water, face first always, um, so that it doesn't take any sort of gulps of water from the cold air hitting them straight away. Um, Brought the baby out and put it straight onto the mum's chest. And um, I've got a towel and I'm sort of rubbing it off slightly. Yeah. Um, and normally when you do that, you get a big cry. Yeah. This baby wasn't crying. So I looked to my daughter. She goes, no, it's, it's okay. She said, um, water birth babies are normally a lot more calm because um, it's less kind of shock of coming yeah. into this big bright world, like world, and it's a little bit colder, obviously, yeah. than snugging its mum. Um, so this baby was a lot more calm. And she said, that's absolutely fine. The baby was alert. The baby was breathing. 
had a few sort of like little cries, but nothing like a huge cry. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it was all just very calm. That's fantastic. <laughs> and it was lovely. It's fantastic that you told me that without crying. I know, <laughs> honestly, I'm close. coming up now thinking about it. <laughs> I've sucked them back up. <laughs> such a lovely moment and such a privilege to be part of that, you mm-hmm. know, with the parents. It's such a special moment for them, but to... I get, you know, why you would want to be a midwife. So yeah. to be part of that story again and again and again is such a special thing. And even even when you said about the more difficult occasion yeah. where things were difficult in that first birth you talked about, to again to be part of that and to help and play a part in that what in that case turned out to be, you know, a good story in the end is such a special thing. So I completely get why people would want mm-hmm. to do There are some sad things you see, mm-hmm. but then there are some wonderful things you see and you learn to sort of focus on those wonderful experiences and the sad but obviously the sad are all learning curves so it all helps that's fantastic so so (laughs) thank you so much for sharing those stories and you know for some people who won't know anything as I said before about birth who will never maybe even experience a birth I'm sure you know they're they're realizing now even listening to you what, what you know what special thing it's to be part of there may also, of course, be students that coming. Well, there will be students that that coming behind you. So I'm thinking about on to next year, our next sort of first year. So have you got any tips or any anything that you would say to a student, your old self, before you got out there? You know, who's yet to see their first birth, do their first witness? Any any little bits of advice that you could give? I would probably say what you'll learn at university, you will learn best practice. Mm. And sometimes everything doesn't always go to plan. And it's always being alert and understanding when things go wrong. Don't always think, oh, but it, that didn't happen in the yeah. lecture. It, yeah. Things do sometimes not always go to plan. So I think it's about understanding that not everything is going to go sort of ABC. Okay. There will yeah. be some other things that jump in the way which will come to a shock, but I think that always speak to your personal tutor and, also, and your mentor as well. Mm-hmm. After mm-hmm. every experience I've had, that's been a little bit upsetting, and I have cried, I've cried every time, <laughs> <laughs> um, but she always says to me, like, we'll reflect on this, we'll talk about it, and I think that always find that time to talk to somebody and tell them whether that's something that's wonderful or whether that's yeah. something that's a little bit sad. And I think just getting it off your chest, never ever bottle it up, but always talk to people and share your experiences. That's that's fabulous. That's very wise words. Thank <laughs> you very much for sharing those, both for other students. And uh, I hope you bear those, your own words in mind as well, because I think that's really, really good advice for anybody. Um, thank you so much, Yasmin, no, thank um, you. for joining us. That's, <laughs> that's brilliant. Lots of people are really going to enjoy listening to that, I know. And thank you and wish you lots of luck with the remainder of semester B and then onwards to your second and third years and and your future profession. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) That's a fantastic message from Yasmin and Julie. Yasmin, what a beautiful message you have shared with us. Yasmin, thank you very much for coming to share with our listeners your first time experience of witnessing a childbirth as a midwifery student. Listening to your message is like watching a movie that we can all see. Your beautiful message has definitely taken our listeners to a memory lane called Yasmin's first time experience of witnessing a childbirth as a mid-first student. Thank you for being part of our guests. I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed listening to you. Good luck in your second year, please. Do come back and let us know how your journey to destiny is going. Also, many thanks to Julie for your excellent interview. 
We always enjoy the creative and relaxed approach that you use to guide our guests in sharing with us their messages. Thank you, Judy. This is to all HSK pod listeners. We always are keen to hear first-hand accounts from HSK students about your work, your experiences, your challenges, your successes. Please, do get in touch if you have got a message you want to share with our listeners. Nothing is too small to be shared. Please, if you want to get in touch, just send an email to Richard on... The email is r.matov2 at hearts.ac.uk. So the email is r.m for mother, a for apple, t for tom, o for office, v for vehicle, u for umbrella, and you put a number two at hearts.ac.uk. Alternatively, please feel free to pop in room 2F267 and the number is room 2F267. This is located on the top floor of uh, the right building. For this month's Professional Spotlight, we have Professor Brian Littlechild from the Social Work team. Now, before I hand you over to Professor Littlechild, there's something I need to share with you. Health and social care is an industry that often puts service users at the center of key decisions and policies. However, there are situations when training health and social care students or professions, especially when they are on placements where only one qualified practitioner as the full responsibility of assessing the capabilities of a student and making a final decision almost entirely by themselves of whether the student will pass or not. Now, I'm not sure of your view on this. Since service users should always be at the center of effective health and social care provision, wouldn't it be a good practice to incorporate an element of service user involvement as part of the student's training and professional development? For example, patients or service users being asked to give feedback on a student, indicating areas a student has really done well and areas that need improvement. Now, we are lucky to have our special guest today, Professor Little Chad, who will be able to enlighten us on the area of co-production with service users in health and social care. Professor Little Chad will share with us some examples of how some elements of co-production with service users in health and social care have been incorporated in some programs offered in the School of Health and Social Work at the University of Hertfordshire. Thank you, uh, Professor Little Child, for coming on the HSK Student Pod. Thank you very much, Richard, for inviting me along to do this podcast. I'm very pleased to do it. I now hand you over to Professor Little Child. Uh, my background, just to let people know, is I'm a registered social worker. I've been working at the university for quite a number of years now, um, and my background is in areas of uh, looked after children, child protection, young offenders, and mental health. One of my areas of interest uh, in the school since being here is in issues of co-production in health and social care. And some of the things I'll be talking about relate to some of the work we've done both within the university and with service users outside of the university on various projects. Um, and I'll give some examples of those. So it builds on work we've been doing over the last 15 years or so in the school. One of those areas is with a group called Creating Links, who contribute to our social work program uh, in terms of things such as admissions uh, and in interviews as part of selection of our students. 
They also run a whole module, but I'll come back to that later and some of the issues involved in developing that module and how the students uh, may have thought of that. But it won't just be about social work. This is about um, a, a policy initiative that comes from government, but also comes from what we call bottom-up processes within agencies and with professionals and service users. And the key point about co-production is really to turn around some of the attitudes and some of the processes that we have in place in our different professions uh, within the school, which have been there for many years, for many generations, and sometimes don't fit very neatly with our training and education and indeed in practice in the field. The whole point of co-production is to say that to have an effective service for someone or for groups of people, it's not just us with our so-called expert knowledge, but also there's expert knowledge from those who actually make use of our services. And increasingly, we're seeing people doing doctorates, doing research projects, which look at the experiences of service users and carers sometimes in order for us to be able to understand the best ways to provide support and treatment where that's the case in relation to not only the physical things that we do, but the emotional life and the social life, which affects so much what happens in terms of various treatments across the board from our different professions. So key point overall is in being able to understand and include service users so it's most effective in what we do, both in individual work um, with, with our patients and service users, but also in terms of policy development. And I'll give some examples of those. Professor Littrichard, why is co-production with service users in health and social care very important in service delivery? So thank you, Richard, um, about why co-production. There are, um, there's been a great deal of attention paid in recent years in health and social care in England in relation to co-production as one part of patient and public involvement, as we tend to call it, and its key place in terms of delivery of services. For example, in a report commissioned by MIND, a major UK mental health charity for the New Economics Foundation, they defined co-production as a relationship where professionals and citizens share power to plan and deliver support together recognising that both partners have vital contributions to make in order to improve quality of life for people and communities. In a more recent report from NHS England, the main government body for setting NHS policy, set out how they see co-production as key for mental health agencies. And I have a quote from them here. Services must be designed in partnership with people who have mental health problems and with carers. So in terms of quality improvement processes, in terms of what we do. Um, Ross and Naylor wrote an article on this two years ago where they say across the whole of the health areas, and this is a quote, all healthcare organisations in the NHS are required to improve their quality of care. For example, one of the key lines of inquiry used by the Care Quality Commission to establish if an organisation is well-led is whether ro robust processes are in place to support learning, continuous improvement and innovation. And they go on to say, where there is considerable potential for mental health providers to innovate and share learning with others across the health system is a key feature of how we may be judged in our delivery of services. So the point of co-production 
is this leveling out of the playing field, if you like, about areas of knowledge, what we bring to the table, and how we agree between all of us, um, how we move forward from the issues that have been uh, identified and how to best resolve them. Professor Ditochan, you have highlighted the importance of co-production in service delivery. I guess co-production is an essential element that should be part of students' training and professional development. Please, can you give us some examples of how co-production with service users in health and social care has been incorporated in some of the HSK social work programs or any co-production projects that uh, have been done in the school? Thank you, Richard. So in terms of some examples of that, I mentioned earlier about um, the Creating Links group. We formed that with service users and carers uh, in the school um, some 15 years ago. And since that time, um, they've been very influential in how we've developed our education and training for social workers. And indeed in the school, there, is, uh, there are various groups in terms of both locally within the academic groups and the wider within the school and the research institute where the development of such co-production in our different areas has become more of a key feature and has been strengthening and continues to do so. So one example from the social work area, as I mentioned about creating links, uh, they're involved in interviewing uh, in terms of decisions about who will come on the course from their perspectives about who would make a good social worker. And they actually teach a whole module as part of our bachelors in social work. Initially, our students found that um, interesting, shall we say, because with our support from the lecturers, um, the service users deliver the course and actually they're part of assessing the outcomes. So that, I say that's quite a challenge for some of the students uh, in terms of this whole levelling out of the playing field of, of different people in power structures in universities and in practice. The group also contribute to many sessions, particularly about skills within the uh, programme as well. They have uh, presented at international conferences. They've been featured in the Times Higher Education Supplement from what they have uh, added to our education for our students. And they have produced book chapters uh, in some books that I've edited, uh, one on interprofessional working uh, five years ago. And most recently, uh, they have a chapter in a book called Participatory Social Work, Research, Practice and Education, which I co-edited with some colleagues from our European Research Institute for Social Work. And that was published two months ago in 2019. Other areas of work where uh, such co-production has taken place was with one health foundation funded project called the Whole Life Project with our local mental health trust, um, where the whole project designed um, a program of support for people with particular mental health problems. Uh, it was designed, written, delivered by social work practitioners, but then evaluated um, by service users and carers with the support of the academics and with clinical staff within the local mental health trust. Uh, and we wrote an article on that and that was published with all our names on that uh, in terms of who contributed. And it's what people bring in different ways to that. So we have a different perspective because try as we may, putting ourselves in someone else's shoes isn't always that easy. And if we have equal and open discussions, we get to the right sort of questions and hopefully to more effective programs that we're doing. In terms of other work, um, I've been involved. Uh, I'm an expert advisor for the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Um, and I've been involved in uh, uh, development of a guideline from them 
on short-term management of aggression and violence in mental health. And one of the things we were pleased of, uh, we were pleased about in relation to that group and that guideline, was a greater emphasis on service user-led um, uh, evaluation and development of services in that particular area. We've included service users and carers in bids for research, particularly around young people and mental health. And there's a development at the moment uh, of a stronger young persons uh, group for public and patient involvement. One that um, I am quite proud of is being involved with myself and a colleague, Professor Shula Ramon, in the development of a European funded programme called Mental Health Recovery and Social Inclusion. Uh, and this is a master's programme um, which was fully developed with colleagues around Europe and in the United States, but with the full involvement of, again, service users and carers. So that uh, the materials that were developed and are used were from the perspective of each of those involved, not just the academics, not just the professionals who were involved. That's really important, I think. We're on our sixth cohort coming up this September, and we're very proud to say that around 50% each year of our intake aren't from professionals, they're actually experts by experience. They are service users and carers of the mental health system. And some of the feedback we've had about that has been really gratifying and seeing the achievement of people from those sorts of involvement um, is really very pleasing indeed. Professor Leto Child, thank you for sharing with us those different examples of co-production that have taken place within the School of Health and Social Work. Please, can you share with us how you see this area developing further in some of your social work programs? So, thank you, Richard. I think in terms of what we're looking at to um, achieve further is thinking about how we empower in a wide sense service users and carers across all of our different professional areas um, in the school so that we have this rounded view um, of how we look at particular issues involved from our patients and service users' points of view that we are able to discuss openly and without too much defensiveness about our own practices, which may have a challenge from such discussions, so that we can move down the road of having service users and carers as much in control of their own treatments and interventions as we can at an individual level, but also at the policy and research level as well. Thank you, Professor Little Child, for sharing with us how you see this area developing further in some of your social work programs. Please, if you don't mind, how do you see co-production developing further within the School of Health and Social Work? Thank you, Richard. So to give an example, which is in relation to health and care sector more widely for all of us in the school, um, there's the example of a project which was funded by the Health Foundation um, and we worked with local NHS trusts across East Anglia in relation to that. The point of this project was to develop new risk assessment and risk management strategies in relation to a number of areas, including people with dementia, with falls, in terms of um, the mental health trust, uh, with people moving from um, hospital ward to the community, which we know is a real risk area uh, for people in terms of, for example, suicide uh, and self-harm. So it included a number of professionals. So there were nurses, there were social workers, there were doctors um, and other professions involved. And it moved down a road of doing something called 
Safer Systems Assessment. And it comes from our work at that time with the um, engineering department, actually, at Cambridge University, who had developed this particular way of doing risk assessment, not based on what's happened in the past, not happening on a particular incident that happened last week for us to concentrate on and do something about, but prospective hazard analysis, which is the other name for it. And the idea is you get people together in a particular setting, any health and social care setting, uh, and they've done work with other people in nursing and medical areas and education in the past to get together and say, hmm, okay, this is an issue we think which is a problem in our area. We think this is a risk. And there's processes which take place to talk with everyone involved. And in our case, including service users and carers, to say, what are the risks? What do you think the problems are? And how can we best deal with them? So therefore, prospective hazard analysis. And as part of that process, we had an advisory group which included service users and carers who also became part of the support and researchers when we did the evaluation. So the point of that is that this can happen in any area of health and social care and has been used in a number of them. So in terms of that, we've written up an article again with um, service users and carers and the professionals involved uh, in one of those trusts and we've submitted an article in relation to that about the processes that take place to try and enable the best inclusion of service users and carers as possible in these sorts of processes in terms of quality improvement uh, in, in our services. So we hope that will be published uh, and that will add to our knowledge about how other people can best take forward those processes. Professor Littlechild, any final message you can give to HSK students in terms of their expectations and responsibilities? And in terms of final message, I think that it's having a focus from our own professional values of uh, having a prime purpose of what we do on the needs and interests and difficulties of our patients and service users. To do that, we need to work with our service users and carers in a way which explores with them what they see the problem as, not just as us as experts telling them what we think their problem is, but sheer decision-making, which is another area that my colleague Professor Shula Ramon is working on with one of our local uh, trusts uh, in terms of individual work. So it's thinking about our professional duties, the way we engage with those people we're providing services for, how we can best explore those, agree them and review with them whether those are working or not uh, and how to change them if they aren't working, both an individual and a policy level. So I'd like to see us include that even more than we are at the moment, and we're doing pretty well on it at the moment, even more to do that in the future. Thank you, Richard. Professor Littlechild, what unenlightening message you have shared with us today. Thank you so much for the useful information you have shared with our listeners. I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed and appreciated your message, especially how they think of service users in whatever they do. Your examples of how some elements of co-production with service users in health and social care have been incorporated in some of the HSK social work programs is a very good thing to show our students and staff why it's important to incorporate an element of service user involvement as part of students' training and professional development. I'm also sure our external listeners will also find the information about the different projects you have talked about very useful 
as these projects do show areas of good practice as part of students' training and professional development. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to come along and talk about these areas, which a number of us are quite passionate about uh, and we think is really important. So um, thank you very much for asking me to allow me to share those thoughts from what we do in the school uh, and outside of the school in the agencies we work with. And um, I hope that um, this will be useful to people. It's always a pleasure to have our special guests on the HSK Student Port. Thank you, Professor Little Child. Bye-bye. I wish to thank our guests, Julie, Professor Little Child and Yasmin for the good messages and news they have shared with us today. It's always a pleasure to have our guests on the HSK Student Pod. Now, before I come to the end of this podcast, I know there are still many assignments that are going on for this academic year, including placements. Some of you even have uh, some exam races to do. Definitely. I know this brings lots of pressure and it's a tough time for you. But please, do not give up. Just keep going and keep aiming to get successfully to your destiny. Despite of all the many challenges you may come across, please, let me remind you of the support there is for you here in the school and in the wider university. I encourage you to make the most of the resources and support you are being offered. If you need to speak to someone, please do not sit in silence. There are always people willing to listen to your needs. Please, if you have not yet done so, do not forget to sign up to the HSK Student Pod so that you can receive the new episodes automatically. This can be done by downloading and installing the SoundCloud app, which is a free app that will give you easy access to the podcast episodes. Those who have iTunes can also get access to the podcast through the iTunes download list website. Alternatively, after listening to this episode, just click on the subscription button. What this means, Whenever every new episode has been added, you'll be automatically notified. I also encourage you to remind five friends of yours to listen to this episode. By doing this, you are doing your part to help to continue building the HSK staff student community. Good luck to all HSK students in your remaining assignments and placements for this academic year. To all our third year HSK students, I know the end to your HSK journey is definitely in sight. Good luck in your remaining tasks and in your job search efforts. I hope you get the job you've been working so hard for. Don't forget our HSK staff members. Good luck in your remaining marking and preparations for your new modules. Lastly, I just need to say to all HSK student pod listeners, look after yourselves and I hope everything you do in June goes well for you. Bye-bye from Richard, your host, and join us in the next HSK student pod which will have something fresh and new to listen to.